0: Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Read this together with me in unison. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text this morning in this new year, We pray that You would open our eyes and impress upon us by Your Spirit the truths of this text. Please magnify before us the authority of Jesus Christ and His commission to His church. We pray that You would cause us to be convicted and encouraged and exhorted like we have never been before from this text. And that it would shape our character that it would shape our ambitions, our goals, our priorities, even over this new year. We ask that you would do this for your glory, for for our good, for the salvation of the nations, even those that are here right around us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I think it's fitting that today, January 1st, that we talk about this text together, which speaks to the primary reason why the church exists in the world today. I'm reminded of Jesus' prayer in John 17. He prayed and he said, Father, I ask that you not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Jesus Christ, our master, has a specific purpose for leaving the church in the world today. We call this text, which reminds us of that purpose, we call this text the Great Commission. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on the Great Commission? Would you raise your hand? Okay, exactly my point. And my invitation to you today is to come to this text as if for the first time. I know that's hard to do, but that's my prayer for us, is that we could come to the words of this text, these very familiar words, sometimes too familiar to us, and we embrace them as if reading them and seeking to understand them for the first time. These are our Lord's final earthly words. And if we think back through the Gospel of Matthew a little bit, we would find these final earthly words to be words of culmination. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, is established as the King of kings and Lord of lords. The King of Israel. And not only the King of Israel, but the King of the universe. You see this, for example, even at the very beginning of Matthew, when you look at his genealogy, Matthew under the inspiration of the Spirit, skillfully traces geneal- the genealogy of Christ back to the King David, to whom God promised that on your throne, David, a-, a one will reign forever and ever. And Christ is established as that King. We also see it as the wise men came to worship Jesus, presenting him gifts of kings. We see it in the way the Lord Jesus lived. He lived as a king, expressing his authority in his words and his works, which we'll look at in some detail later on. He was king and Lord as he died. No one took his life from him, he laid it down willingly. He is sovereign, even in his death. Even his inscription what was his inscription on the cross? King of the Jews. This is what Matthew is relaying to us over and over again, the the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then he rose from the dead, Matthew 28 at the beginning, and conquered the final and most powerful enemy, which is death itself. And now in this text, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we see Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords speaking consummate words to his followers. And notice, this, these words given are right before the ascension of Christ, where he was seated at the right hand of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. He said to his disciples, go make disciples baptizing and teaching. And so this is what God Christ has given to His followers between His ascension and His second coming as King, the Great Commission. These are words of culmination. These are also words of priority. What is the chief end of man? We say that together. We we remind ourselves of that throughout church history. The chief end of man is to enjoy God and to glorify Him, to know Him and to enjoy Him forever forever. And so we look at this, and we see the Great Commission, and the Great Commission certainly serves that priority. How can you know and enjoy and mindfully, knowingly bring glory to a God that you do not know, and to Christ without submitting to Him as Lord? And that's what every ministry of the Great Commission serves, to bring people into a knowing, enjoyment, and glorifying to the Lord. The Great Commission is why the church exists in the world. The Great Commission shows us that it is not the church's role, for example, to entertain the unbeliever. It's not to elicit affirmation from the world. That's not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is not to engage in political reform, but what? To make disciples. That is why we are here. That's why we exist in the world. That's why God didn't just save us and then bring us to heaven. He has us here to make disciples. This is so important for us to remember. I'm so glad we get to worship together on January 1st, the first day of this year, and to refresh these thoughts in our minds. This is why the church collectively and individually, each one of us individually, exists in the world. This is the commission that compels and commands the church and its leaders from generation to generation. The very first generation that we see in the of the church in the God, in the book of acts was making disciples and so now 2000 years later we are seeking to do the same and these are words for all disciples none excluded i want you to just notice here in verses 16 and 17 the ones to whom christ was speaking the 11 That says a lot even in itself, doesn't it? There was one among them who was a betrayer, Judas, and he left. And so there's the the eleven. These were disciples. What does that word disciple mean? A disciple is someone who follows another person throughout life, learns from them, and imitates them. Those are the three words that make up the definition of being a disciple. A follower, a learner, an imitator. And these are ultimately those who have trusted in Christ as Savior and submitted to Christ as Lord. And so we see these 11 here. The 11 disciples of Christ. And they were willing disciples. Notice even here in verse 16 that Jesus had told them to go to Galilee and to a specific mountain to to meet. And there they were available to Jesus. They did that simple task of what he had directed them to do. They were obedient. They were willing disciples. It is only willing disciples who can fulfill the Great Commission. These were also worshiping disciples. Verse 17, when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. Do you realize that truly evangelism and fulfilling the Great Commission and making disciples is an overflow of worship? You won't make disciples as a follower of Christ unless you're willing and available to Christ to do His service, but also unless you are worshiping Christ. And this word for worship that that we see here is really very picturesque. It speaks of falling to the knees, to touch the ground with your forehead, to kiss the hand, to express reverence with humble adoration. Disciple-making is always the overflow of that Kind of heart toward Christ. Otherwise, what do you have to talk about? You have Christ that you want to give to others. You so admire and adore Christ that you must compel others to worship Him as He deserves. And you so love people that you want them to know the Christ and worship Him whom you worship and are satisfied by. Willing disciples make disciples. Worshiping disciples make disciples. These are the ones whom Jesus told. But notice also, some what? Doubted. And that word has the idea of wavering. Going back and forth. Wavering. Like these disciples still had doubts in their heart. It wasn't just but a, a short time ago where Christ was dead in the grave, buried, and then rose again. Again. And you you think of how they struggled with that. They wanted to believe, but they were uncertain, feeling like they needed more evidence that Christ was indeed risen. Think about it. Back through just the night of Jesus' death, none had watched with Him and prayed. They didn't understand what Jesus was, was doing. None had stayed with Jesus in His most intense hour. They had all fled, right? They had all fled in fear. Peter had denied him three times. Thomas had doubted him. Some had taken up the motions of their old lives. All had been given the truth and encouragement they needed from Christ to believe. I think of Thomas and how Jesus said, come here Thomas, touch touch me. Put your fingers in my hands. Put your hand in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Peter had been restored by Christ and told to feed his sheep. Luke 24, 36-53 brings us the story of how Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with his disciples and how they, he stirred them up to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And he said, give me a piece of fish to eat. I'm not a spirit. I'm a body. I'm, a, I'm risen. I'm your Lord and Savior. And then he sent them out. Acts one twenty eight. he said, after, after the Spirit of God comes upon you, you'll have the power you need to go and be my witnesses. And I love how 1 John 1.1-4 1, 1 confirms all of that from the life of Christ the disciples where John says, we, we saw what we heard, what, our, what we touched, what we handled. What did they handle and touch and hear and see? The Word of Life, Christ, the resurrected Christ. And so even in the midst of all their wavering, Christ gave them what they needed to believe. And He still what? He still told them, make disciples. These are the men and women who Christ makes calls to make disciples. Willing disciples. Worshiping disciples. Wavering disciples. And we can certainly find ourselves among these. And Christ's words here are for us as well. If I could summarize this text into one sentence, I would put it this way. Our Lord has completely equipped us, therefore let us make disciples. Our Lord has completely equipped us, therefore let us make disciples. Well, the question then we need to ask ourselves as we come to the rest of this text is this. With what has our Lord equipped us to make disciples? Three things I want you to see from these verses. Number one, we have been equipped with our Lord's authority. That's the first thing. I'll give you all three up front so you can keep track of them. Number one, our Lord's authority. Number two, our Lord's command. And three, our Lord's promise. Those are the three things we need to make disciples. First, our Lord's authority, number one, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So often when we speak of the Great Commission, we go right for verse 19 and the first half of verse 20. And we sort of lop off the two bookends of this. And we do ourselves a great disservice and we miss the most important pieces of the Great Commission. This verse 18 speaks of our Lord's authority. Jesus Christ, dear ones, has all authority. What is this authority? What does this word mean, authority? Listen carefully. This word authority here speaks of absolute power of choice. The complete freedom to do whatever one pleases. The power, the ability, and the strength mentally and physically to do whatever one wants to do. There is no possible frustration to this authority. There's no addition to this authority. Nothing is needed. Absolute and total freedom to do one's will. And Jesus, remember, these are Jesus' words to his disciples. Jesus himself says, all authority has been given to me. And again, Matthew demonstrates this amazingly. Jesus didn't just say, I have authority. You follow the gospel of Matthew, you see Jesus' authority vividly on display. For example, his teaching. Was filled with authority. His debating with the religious leaders was filled with authority. Matthew 7 29 is a conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as the people listened to him, what was their response? They were amazed because this man taught with authority and not like the teachers they were used to, t- to hearing. And I don't even I don't even understand the full impact of what they experienced, but whatever it was, it was absolutely astounding and amazing the authority of Christ to command the attention of his hearers and to speak the words of God. Could you imagine God preaching? That's authority. That's Christ. He had authority over leprosy. Matthew 8 and verse 3. I mean, think of the effect that leprosy had on Israel. All through the Old Testament, you read about it. Did send people out of the whole community. Nothing could be done about this on a human level. But Jesus, He just speaks, and the leprosy is gone. He, paralysis, authority over paralysis and withered limbs. Matthew, 9 and verse, or Matthew 8 and verse 9. Matthew 12 and verse 13. I think of John chapter 5 filling this out as well with the man who was lame there for 38 years and Jesus speaks one word of authority and the limb is made whole and the man walks all manner of human diseases you could you just walk through the gospel of Matthew and you read account after account of Jesus healing one sick person after another Jesus had authority to command human submission. How often did he say, you follow me? He had authority over his father's place of dwelling, the temple. Matthew 21, 12, he cleansed the temple. And they asked him, John 2 as well, he cleansed the temple. There were two temple cleansings, one at the beginning of his ministry, one right before he dies. And they asked him, what authority do you have to do these things? My Father's house. Right? Is, He's is the Son of God. He has the authority. He's authority over creation. Matthew 8, 27. He causes the stormy sea to be perfectly still. John, 11, or John 2 and verse 11. He turns water into wine. Matthew 14, He walks on the water. Matthew 15, 37. is one of His feedings of thousands of people. Jesus had authority to forgive sin. Matthew 9.6 He had authority over blindness and muteness. Matthew 9.30 and 33 and also John 9 healing the man born blind. No one had heard of these things before. He had authority over death itself. Matthew 9.25 He reaches down in the midst of the mocking crowd and takes the girl by the hand and lifts her back into life. John 11, Lazarus, come forth. The authority of Christ, just a word. And Lazarus, with all of his grave clothes, comes hobbling out. He has authority over demons, Matthew 10, and verse 1. And not only personally, but he extended and gave that authority to his disciples so they could cast out demons. He has authority to judge all, Matthew 5, 27 has authority to lay his own life down and take it back up again. John 10, 18. And he has authority to give eternal life to whomever he wills. John 17, 2. Jesus Christ has all authority. He is absolute freedom to do all his will in the universe. And what is the extent of Christ's authority? Notice What Jesus says here is the extent of his authority in heaven and on earth. The complete universe, the entire realm of creation, the capacity of Christ's authority is infinite, and the domain of Christ's authority is infinite. Christ's authority cannot be limited, it cannot be thwarted, it cannot be expanded, it can't be measured. He has all authority in heaven and earth. But notice in the text as well why Jesus has this authority He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, Jesus has all authority inherently because He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God Himself. Therefore, He has inherently, intrinsically has all authority. But... The text also clearly says that that authority has been given to Him. In what sense was all authority given to Christ? Well, here, in this sense, Jesus as the God-man, God the Son become human as the Messiah Christ has been given all authority by God His Father because He earned it as the God-man. He has earned the place of absolute authority over all creation. How did He earn it? By humbling Himself. Taking on human form, human nature. The form of a servant. Sinlessly obeying the will of His Father in our place. Taking our guilt upon Himself. Suffering death. Even to the death on a cross. Philippians two eleven or 6-11 to makes this logical connection. Who, though he was in the form of God, though he had the nature of God, didn't count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. It wasn't a contradiction with him becoming man, taking on human nature, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now we have the giving of authority. Therefore, because of that, because of the Son's infinite humility as the man, Christ Jesus, to take that upon himself and do it sinlessly and perfectly, to live and die sinlessly and perfectly, God then highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the name and place of authority. Absolute and entire authority. And he was given that by his Father because of his great suffering and humility. He earned it. All authority belongs to Christ intrinsically as the eternal Son and by reward as the perfect, sinless, humble man, Christ Jesus. So what is our response then to the authority of Christ? First response must be fear and trembling. Like Isaiah, who saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his sovereignty filled the earth and the temple, and Isaiah says, woe is me. This is is really the first call to salvation, isn't it? To be in awe of the authority of Jesus Christ. And to know that if one does not submit himself or herself to his authority, they will be judged by that authority. But to know that because he has all authority, he has a power then to save. And his mercy is effectual for those who come in repentance and faith. And that's why... God sent the messenger to Isaiah with the coal from the place of atonement to purge him from his sin and prepare him to preach the gospel. That's the first response, fear and trembling. But then it moves also to awe and admiration because we can't comprehend this kind of authority. You don't have this kind of authority. I don't have it. I mean, we get up in the day, we make our plan, we write our schedule and most of it gets thwarted. And, changed. and it doesn't happen when we want it to happen or the way we want it to happen. But not Christ. Every word of His is perfectly fulfilled. And so we admire Him and adore Him for that. And we're even so much more amazed as He welcomes us into that plan that He has prepared. And will bring about perfectly and we let that fear and that awe and that adoration then move us to submission to Him, right? Salvation in Christ is coupled together with submission to Christ. Because we must bow before His authority and humbly obey whatever He commands. Confidence. Because now we know that we're sent by this authority to do what He commands. And He will provide for and enable all that He commands. Dear ones, listen. What is your first consideration when confronted with the Great Commission? What are your first thoughts? Your own abilities? Your own inabilities? Your own fears? Your own ambitions? Dear ones, it ought to be the authority of Christ. That ought to consume us when we think of the Great Commission. This is Christ's authority with which we are sent and by which we are sent. And so let us humbly respond His authority with awe and submission and confidence. This is what disciples do to their Master. This is what Spirit-filled followers of Christ must do. We must, in awe and fear and submission and confidence, Obey His authority. Our Lord has completely equipped us. Therefore, let's make disciples. Number two this morning, our Lord's command. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you have to see this connection. This is so important. Therefore, you've got to connect in your mind, verses 18 with verse 19. Therefore does that. Christ's command to His church and its leaders to make disciples is grounded in and built upon His universal, infinite authority. Because all authority belongs to Christ, now He says to us, to the eleven, to us, to His church, you make disciples. (coughs) What does it mean to make disciples? Well, it it just morphs that word disciple up here into a verb. You make these disciples. It means to cause others, to compel others, to follow Christ. It's like even in John chapter 1 when those early disciples, Peter and Let's see, Peter and, or no, it was John and Andrew were the first two, I think, or John and Peter, I forget now, but they followed Jesus and they talked with him and then they were convinced by his teaching about who he was and they were ready to follow him. And and then they started going to other disciples and they said, what? Come and see. Just come and see. You've got to hear this guy for yourself. Come on. Follow Jesus. Cause others to follow Christ. To compel others to learn of Christ and to compel others to imitate Christ through complete trust in His salvation and absolute submission to His Lordship. This is Christ's command to us. Make disciples. That is the central command of this Great Commission, of this verse 19. It's given in the authority of Christ or the church of Christ who are left in the world to do Christ's work. You see, a true disciple of Christ is not a person who only trusts in Christ for their salvation from sin, but also submits to Christ as Lord of their lives. You've got to see the connection between Christ's authority and the making of disciples. You can't receive Jesus' as Savior without receiving Him and submitting to Him as Lord. You can't be saved from your sin and still live in it without repentance. That doesn't make sense. Some may lead you to believe that you can walk an aisle or pray a prayer or make a church camp decision or throw a stick in the fire and then go on to live ruled by your own sinful worldly desires and not by Christ and still be saved. Please understand that that is not true anywhere in the New Testament. Some of us have, in years gone by, have have come to understand that. How many of you thought you were saved because of some prayer or decision you'd made and then you looked at your life and you came to realize, I am an unregenerate sinner. And God sent you the quickening ray and all of a sudden you were enabled by the Spirit of God to submit your heart the lordship of Christ. That's salvation. That's salvation. That's the kind of salvation that is accomplished by a king, right? He doesn't plead and beg and hope he gets a few takers. He commands repentance and faith and enables it by his spirit. That's what it means to make disciples. Making disciples is not about getting people to make decisions for Christ. It's about compelling people by the word of Christ to submit to the authority of Christ as Savior and Lord. So then how are we to do that? Jesus tells us here, the main command, keep in mind, please, is make disciples. And with that main command comes three accompanying actions that tell us how to make disciples. And the three accompanying actions are going, going, Baptizing and teaching. That's how you make disciples. The main command is make disciples. The accompanying actions, they're all participles, are going, baptizing, and teaching. Let's look at these three. First, going. What does that mean, going? It just simply means as you go on your way, As you walk through your life, as you depart even sometimes. You can think of it this way. So as you are going on your way, as you are walking through your life, your daily life, and sometimes even departing to go somewhere else, do so with the mindful priority. The passion, the spiritual passion and ambition of making disciples. This command from the authority of Christ is to rule our going. It might be going across the room. It might be going across the building. It might be going across the street. It might be going across the country. It might be going across the world. But make disciples by taking the initiative to go. That's how you make disciples. You go. You take initiative. You go. Don't expect others to come to you. You must go to them. That's Christ's word to us. It might be going to your children day after day. It might be going to your spouse day after day. It might be going to your coworker, your neighbor, your cousin, your friend, or someone you have never met before you go to them. But you are to go to them all. And make disciples. That's what Christ has called you to do as his disciple. And we're to go, what does it say? To make disciples of all nations. There is to be no one to whom and no place to which we are unwilling to go. Christ includes everyone in the Great Commission. We tend to be selective to whom we go, based on various reasons. And I'll let you think of those reasons. But that's not Christ's command to us. He says to go to all the nations, all the Gentiles, all the pagan peoples, near and abroad. All people need to be compelled to submit to the authority of Christ and become His disciples. Christ deserves that worship. And we love people enough to call them into that worship. That's what disciples do. That's what Christians do. That's what the church is Called to do. This is what the church does and has been doing since Christ spoke these words. That's the point of Matthew six thirty three, go uh, um, to, to make a priority of seeking first Christ's kingdom and righteousness. Those who are not Christ's disciples go about their lives taking much initiative and making a priority of pursuing the things of the world. But Christ's disciples go about their lives. First, seeking Christ's reign and His righteousness, not only in their own hearts, but in the hearts of those to whom they go. By the authority of Christ, we're called to make disciples by going, going. (coughs) Secondly, baptizing. Jesus said, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And there's so much truth packed into this phrase. Baptism is the outward sign or demonstration of the inward transformation that Christ has made in the life of one who is his disciple. Immersing someone into the water and bringing them up again displays outwardly that a sinner's old life of sin and rebellion has been crucified with Christ, is buried in Christ's tomb, and that the sinner has been resurrected with Christ to a new life that... Glorifies God, that is submissive to his authority. And so, baptism is the outward sign that a person has become a disciple of Jesus Christ through genuine repentance from sin, from false religion, from self righteousness, and faith toward Christ. Now, we have to be careful with this because Jesus is not saying that all we need to do to make disciples is to go around dunking people under the water. That's not his intention. There's much implied in his command to be baptizing. Think of baptism, dear ones. This, this, I think, will be a helpful illustration for our modern culture. Think of baptism like a wedding ring. What baptism is a salvation? The wedding ring is to marriage. Baptizing someone doesn't, have, doesn't save him or her any more than putting on rings makes a couple married. But both baptism and the, and the ring are signs that much has already happened. Do you see? It's the sign of a covenant that has already been made. When Christ says to make disciples by baptizing, he's implying that we do what we see the disciples and the apostles doing throughout the book of Acts, for example, proceeding and leading up to the sign of baptism of new disciples. The apostles preached the Christian gospel to everyone they baptized and called them to respond. They didn't baptize those who hadn't heard the true gospel and who hadn't yet responded to it rightly by embracing Christ for who He is as Savior and as Lord. Lord. And so we're to follow that same example of the men who heard and obeyed this very command of Christ on this very day. They heard this command the first time it was given. And that's what they did. And so we can follow that. And you know, that's really exactly what Jesus' words here imply. Notice carefully, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is truly a succinct and exact summary of Christian truth. Throughout the New Testament, there's these short and compact versions of Christian creed, and here's one of them. Notice that there is one true God baptizing them in the name. That's singular. The name. The name of the Father. Notice, of the of, the, of the, the name of the Father, the one name of the Son, and the one name of the Holy Spirit. What is, what, is Matthew, what is Christ doing here? He's saying that there is one true God, singular, the name of the God. And the name and nature of this one true God is revealed in His self-disclosure, in the Scriptures, and in Christ, the God-man. And this one true God exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Each of these three distinct persons bear the same name. One name. The same nature. The same essence. That of Yahweh, who is God alone. The Father is Yahweh. The Son is Yahweh. The Spirit is Yahweh. One God. Three persons who is Yahweh. The one true God. That is radical for the religions that were known in this day. And certainly in our day too. This is not the God of Judaism, of apostate Judaism, right? It was, that's, that's not what the Jews thought when they heard this. No, there's one God. To think that Christ is God, that's blasphemy, you see? And certainly the Roman gods, there were so many of those. This was a radical declaration of truth that the one God that was written all through the Hebrew Scriptures is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Jews who would have heard that were like, what? Again, that's different from apostate Judaism. That's different from all the religions of the world. This is not their God. And so to turn to Him and to submit to this God who is three persons, And to see that the Father planned and decreed our salvation, the Son worked and accomplished our salvation, the Spirit applies and completes our salvation. All three persons working together as one God to save sinners from their sin and recreate a new redeemed people with the Son of God, Jesus being their head, their King, their Savior and Lord. This is the good news we preach. It's summed up right there. And someone will not be baptized in that name until what happens first? They receive it. And like happened in, in First Thessalonians with the Thessalonian church, they turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son's return from heaven. That's what's implied in this baptizing. And so, we are called to compel those who hear this good news to repent, to turn from their sin, to believe in Christ, to receive Him. We compel others to embrace this good news by faith, to turn from all other gods, to submit themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. And when they do, we baptize them, signifying that they are dead to the old lies and the old rebellion, and alive to the new life of truth and righteousness in Christ. Baptism isn't necessary to be saved, but once saved, baptism is necessary because Christ, in all of his authority, commanded it right here. So once you are saved by Christ, to disregard this command is to be baptized, to be baptized is to disobey Christ in all of his authority, just as it would be disobedient to disregard any of Christ's commands. And this is what Christ meant when he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But is that all we are commanded to do in making disciples? We go, we baptize. No, we teach. Here's the, last, here's the last action of making disciples. Teaching them. What does that mean? It means to impart doctrine. To instill doctrine. To explain, to expand, to expound, to give instruction. Seeing people converted and baptized is not the end of disciple-making, dear church. It's only what? The beginning. We must teach them. You must teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what Christ says we must teach new disciples. That means to attend carefully to and to hold fast to all that Christ has commanded us. What has Christ commanded us? All of Scripture is the word of Christ because he is God and he affirmed the Old Testament as the word of God and he gave the New Testament as the word of God. And so we're really to teach disciples from cover to cover what Christ commands us to believe and what Christ commands us and how Christ commands us to behave (coughs) and what Christ commanded us in everything. That's what he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Compelling the new disciple to observe all of it, that is to submit to Christ's authority in everything, and that will not be completed in anyone's lifetime. Teaching is to be done perpetually until Christ returns. This is the passion and the mission of Christ's church. This is why we exist in the world. This is what we do. This is our mission statement. We must make disciples by giving instruction about God's nature, about Christ's person and work, about salvation and conversion, about the Holy Spirit and the Christian life, about prayer and Bible study, about life in the church. But you can see from Jesus' words here that making disciples is so much more than imparting information, Right? It is so much more. Making disciples is teaching people how to obey Christ in their daily lives. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's, That's disciple making. That's living together life on life, helping each other to learn to turn from sin and submit to the authority of Christ. It's not just giving information. Yes, sound doctrine is good and essential, but that's the beginning. It must be applied. And Christ's authority must be submitted to This is what Christ has commanded us. And I'm concerned about some trends, and there's many, but that compromise this command in the modern church. One is just this, this constant pushing for the sinner's prayer and the profession of faith. It's a whole lot easier to count, but it doesn't make disciples. And it most often makes false converts, and it harms the church, and it harms people. Making disciples as Jesus commanded us is difficult work, often slow work, sometimes invisible work, but it's lasting work. And through it, Christ builds and multiplies His church because it's His work in and through us. There's another trend that has picked up these days that also concerns me. It's, I'll call it, distance discipleship. I think that can also compromise this command. So many people nowadays are so isolated from each other. And so much ministry is attempted. Even nowadays, people are trying to do biblical ministry through digital means at a personal distance. You can certainly pass biblical and truthful information in this way, but you cannot make disciples this way. You may be able to teach and preach the gospel digitally, but you certainly cannot baptize digitally. And you cannot truly teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded us digitally. Teaching someone to observe all that Christ commands means that you must observe their daily life. And you must observe, they must observe your daily life. Making disciples requires a life-on-life relationship. Just how Jesus lived with his disciples. Making disciples includes personal accountability that can only be kept by personal closeness and observation and instruction. Making disciples includes coming together for instruction and the exercise of spiritual gifts. And church discipline is essential to disciple making and the Lord's table and so much more. None of this can be accomplished through phones and screens. Christ has clearly commanded us to make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. And that's done person to person, life on life. And please notice again here what what gives us the permission and the impulse to make disciples in this way. Please make this connection every time. It's not relational capital. Have you noticed that this is a theme that goes on nowadays too? You can't call someone to repentance and faith. You can't make a disciple of someone. You can't call someone to submit to Christ's authority unless you have relational capital with them. Is that the impetus for this command from Christ? Absolutely not. It's not about educational clout either. I gotta wait till I know so much more, get a degree or whatever, be a pastor. That's not this either. There are so many pastors who sit in there study and write books and, and, and do stuff online and they don't live with their people discipling them anyway. That's not what this is about. This is not about personal calling. This is, or personal giftedness for evangelism. This is disciple-making for everyone in the church. This is not about government cooperation, right? We don't need the government's approval or cooperation to do any of this. All, all of those things can be used by Christ in our disciple-making. Yes, He can use digital means. He can use relational capital. He can use educational information. He can use a personal uh, Calling to uniquely being gifted in evangelism, he can call, he can use government affirmation. But he doesn't need any of it. But the permission and the impulse and the capacity to make disciples comes from the authority of Christ alone. You may need to witness to someone that you have just met. You may not know a whole theology book. You may not have the government's approval. You may not be particularly gifted in compelling people to make a decision. But Christ has called you to make disciples and he has given you his authority. That's all you need. That's all you need. He has commanded us to do this and that's all the permission and impulse we need. We know because of this, we know what that stubborn sinner needs more than they do. And they might not want it, but we can give it to them and they can hear it and God can change their heart. So what is our response to this command from Christ? What is your response to this command to make disciples by going and and baptizing and teaching? First, awe. Awe that God would so entrust this to us. Awe of Christ's authority that commands it, enables it, but submission to it. Are you willing to submit yourself to this command in all of its parts? But gratitude too, right? That, that you would be a disciple. That somehow in God's grace, you would be told the truth and you would be baptized and you would be taught by someone. Love, love for Christ for bringing all this to you. Love for the lost, the gospel, dear ones, was not made to be kept. And personally enjoyed only, but to be broadcasted so that others could know the joy in Christ could be worshiped by them as well. It's stewardship. We're one among millions who are to pass on the gospel and make disciples. Obedience to this. <clears throat> Do you see your place of obedience in this great commission? Do you? Do you see it? Are you seeking to obey Christ's command? Are you going? Are you baptizing? Are you teaching? Are you seeking to follow His instructions for making disciples? Our Lord has completely equipped us, and therefore we make disciples. Finally this morning, our last point. Verse 20, B. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. This is the best part, right? I trust that we all right now, and I hope you are, are sensing the Spirit of God pressing these truths upon your heart. I know I am. We sense the weight of Christ's authority in this. We sense the breadth of the command of Christ given to us. And now we sense the weakness of our own failures. Our own distractions. Our own inabilities. Our deficiencies, our fears, our pride, our doubt, our sin. And we say in our hearts, how can we ever respond to such authority? How can we ever obey such a command in any way that is fitting or profitable or meaningful or enduring? And yet, you've got to see in this text, to whom did Christ speak these words at first? The disciples that slept instead of praying. Remember in the beginning of our time together? Disciples who had their hearts set on earthly health, wealth, and prosperity instead of Christ's righteousness and atonement and the glory of God. Disciples who had fled at Christ's hour of suffering. Peter who had betrayed him. Thomas who had doubted him. Disciples who were foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. These guys, Jesus says, you go and make disciples. And they're barely good disciples themselves. Right? You see that? To these, Christ entrusts his great commission. And to us, Christ entrusts his great commission. And Christ sends us to go into all, to all of these rebellious and wicked and immoral and idolatrous pagan people around us and to baptize them and to teach them and to make them disciples. That's what he says to us. Isn't this a poor strategy put together by Christ? (laughs) Right? Lousy people to pick, Christ. I think you need to pick a different team. No, it isn't. It's not, dear ones. Why not? Because of our Lord's promise. Number three, our Lord's promise. What does he say? This makes all the difference in the world. I will be with you. That's everything. The resurrected, reigning Christ in all of his authority and power says to us, I will be with you. How is Christ with us? How was he with his disciples? Through the sending of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised the disciples in John 14 through 16 that He would come to them in the Spirit and be in them so that the Spirit would witness through them. Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that promise of the presence of Christ through the indwelling Spirit is fulfilled in every believer at the moment of their salvation. Well, how do you know that? Ephesians 1:13 and 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require, acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I will be with you, Jesus says. That promise from Christ makes all the difference in the universe. That promise from Christ secures the perpetuation of this mission. That promise secures the preservation of the gospel. Just like Paul said when we studied 2 Timothy 2, he says, I'm convinced that he is able to keep that which he has entrusted to me until that day. That promise from Christ necessitates the success of this mission. That promise from Christ guarantees that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ is with us. I will be with you. And therefore, He will supply and enable and provide and execute in us and through us all of His commands that He determines to bring about. You see, His truth will be perfect. His presence of truth will be perfect over our doubts. His strength will be perfect over our weakness. His confidence will be perfect over our fears. His power will be perfect over our inability. His words will be perfect over our fumbling. His authority will be perfect over our timidity. Again, I invite you to think of Christ in the Gospels, the one who raised the dead and made blind eyes see, the one from whom the crowds were reeling in amazement at his authority, that Christ Christ. Is in you. I will be with you, he said. The question is, do we believe that? That's when it'll make a difference when we come to this deep conviction that what Jesus said is true. He is with us. And he will not come and go. He promises to be with us always. Even to the end of the age, He's with us with whomever we speak, wherever we go, whenever we are making disciples in His name, whatever may be afflicting us, He is with us and He will be with us until the consummation of the age, until we see Him face to face and are forever with the Lord. The more the authority and power of Christ is magnified in our minds, the more his presence with us will be all our hope and confidence for obeying the great commission. So we got to fix our attention on the authority and the power of Christ and the promise of his presence. That's why he leaves us with that final command of behold, you look at this, he says. You pay attention to this. Listen to me. Hear this and take it in. And don't lose sight of this. I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the commitment. That's the equipment we need to obey the Great Commission. And our response to this promise? Trust. Trust. Trust Him that He is with you. Confidence in His presence, in Him. Not yourself, not even a discipleship curriculum. Confidence in Him. Joy, because He's with you. Peace, because He's with you. Love for Him to be with you. And obedience to the Great Commission. Our Lord has completely equipped us, therefore let's make disciples. In closing this morning, And will ask us, will we as a church submit ourselves to this command of Christ in this year ahead? Will we? Will we trust Christ to take our obedience to the Great Commission to the next level for His glory? This is why we exist here. Will you make it your priority this year through the presence of Christ? to submit yourself to the authority of Christ to make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. I want to do all I can by the power of Christ to help all of us with that. And and I hope that every member and every regular attender would be drawn into this. I want to give us something or provide something for us that I think will help. I I have a great desire for this year. And it has to do with this, this book. It's called Partners, One-on-One Discipleship. And I want to bring all that we just talked about to a very specific application. I would like for this year that every member of our church and every regular tender actually go through this book. For several reasons. This book, Partners, is, is a great tool to, first of all, make disciples. But also, it helps us to become someone who knows how to make disciples. It's intended to be done one-on-one with another person. And then that person goes and does it one-on-one with someone else. So the leadership team and I will be talking with each of you over the next several weeks and asking you, inviting you to do this study with someone else from our gathering it may be a man with a man. It may be a woman with a woman. It may be a husband with a wife. It may be a parent with a child. I think this will be a great way to begin to obey this text from our Lord. And so I'm urging you this morning, as we begin to talk about this over the next several weeks, I'm urging you in light of our text to eagerly embrace this opportunity in obedience to the authority of, of Christ, I think it'll be a blessing to our church, to you personally. It'll help you. And, I, and I'm, I'm very, very in earnest and burdened, I guess you could say, for this because we must make disciples of Escanaba. Isn't that why we're here? And sometimes we say, well, I don't know exactly how to do that. And here's a good way to teach us how to do that. Very practically and very very naturally in a way. And you know what? We must make disciples of our families. And I want to put every tool I can into your hands as parents and grandparents to take your children and grandchildren under your arms and to teach them systematically the word of God, everything that Christ has commanded you. And this, this, some, some of us have already begun this study and already be beginning to do it with, with those that God has entrusted into our families. And I think we need need to remember that we need to make disciples of those who come to us from other churches. Most of us have have been studying certain things for many years now. And then we have a new brother or sister come into our church. Well, what happens then? Well, you have to teach them. You have to teach them what you've been given. And we have to grow in unity of doctrine and the knowledge of the Son of God. And also... We must make disciples, listen dear ones, of those who think they are believers among us but are not. This gives us opportunity to do that too. Even among our assembly, evangelism is needed. If we don't think so, we are being naive. We just just ended the letter of James and he closes that letter with saying, Now you go and save those who think they are saved but aren't because they fall short of what God says must go on in the life of a true believer. We're called to that. Think of it, dear ones, the weight upon us to be sitting next to, on any given Sunday, someone who thinks they're in the faith and aren't, and we thought about it and we knew it and we were burdened by it but did nothing. How urgent we must feel about that. And this can help us this can be a tool for that to say, hey, you know, would you go through this study with me? And the first chapter is excellent because it, it, it talks, it just asks the simple question, being sure about your relationship with God. Am I really a Christian? And it goes through the true gospel so very well, and it probes the, the heart with the truth to ask those hard questions. So I'm hoping that we will see, by God's grace, in obedience to this great commission, by the authority of Christ, people saved and sanctified and matured over this year ahead. Would you pray about this with us and be eager to engage in this? And let's ask God, let's ask Christ to do just what He says He will do in this text. Our Lord has equipped us. Let's make disciples. He's given us his authority. He's given us his command. He's given us his presence. Before we pray, I want to ask you, are you a disciple this morning? Are you even a disciple of Christ yourself? If not, I urge you to come and become a disciple even today, a learner, a follower, one who is eager and willing to rest in Christ for salvation and submit to his lordship in everything. You will not be able, listen please, dear one, you will not be able to put off His command to repent and believe the gospel forever. You might be able to put it off for today, but you won't be able to put it off forever because Christ has all authority and He will bring you into His judgment and His authority will demand perfect accountability. And He will judge you with that irresistible authority. The only reason that people put off His command to repent and believe in the gospel and follow him is because they love their sin. They don't want to follow Christ in righteousness, they want to continue in their worldly self satisfactions. So I urge you that way of life ends in the authoritative, irresistible judgment of Christ. So today I urge you if you are not a disciple, throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ. He is merciful. He lived to give you righteousness. He died to remove the punishment of your sin. He rose to give you new life and eternal life. Receive his mercy and no true satisfaction and joy and love from your master as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way in Matthew. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is a perfect invitation from Christ to be his disciple. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we've heard the words of Christ this morning right from the text that came right from his lips. And we are humbled before your authority and your majesty, Lord Jesus. I want to talk to you. Thank you for giving us this text, giving us this commission, giving us your authority and your command and your presence. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being with us. Thank you for and trusting the gospel to us and enabling us to carry it in spite of our childishness and our sinfulness and our failure in so many ways. Thank you for undergirding us and restoring us and redeeming us and strengthening us and maturing us and bringing us along. You are with us. You send us by your authority and with your authority. We thank you for that that gives us confidence and rest and hope and peace and joy and love and gratitude. Make us a church effective to make disciples. For your glory, we pray, and the building of your church. In your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.